0: Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world, what did they get right, what did they get wrong, and what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past. I'm Sarah F. Ducker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about the 1987 film Sorceress, or in French, Le Moine et la Sorcière, with guest Courtney Hogan. Hi, Courtney. Hello. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. I have no history training whatsoever. (laughs) I haven't taken a history course in a while. But yeah, I write mostly body horror. I work for morbidlybeautiful.com and I write movie reviews. I also went to film school and studied under George Romero before he ended up dying.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really cool the last time I was in Pittsburgh I went to the cemetery where he filmed part of the first movie because also a bunch of my ancestors are buried there oh wow yeah
1: yeah I actually haven't been to that cemetery yet I did use historic at the Monroeville mall so like you know that one I've been to a lot
0: right yeah I have not been to the mall just uh just the cemetery <laughs> Yeah, my dad was like very stoked to the like, yes, you have to come to Pittsburgh and meet us in Pittsburgh and go to the cemetery with us.
1: <laughs> it's famous. And we know people in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, not really, because they all died like 200 <laughs> years ago. but <laughs> Still, still some kind of connection.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can see our last name on a lot of gravestones.
1: See, that's that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's
0: fun. So I selected this movie because I wanted to take the opportunity to explore the work of a woman director at a moment when the Oscars, which are tomorrow, emphasize how women doing this kind of work often remain unrecognized. Any particular reason that you were willing to volunteer to come on for this particular episode?
1: Oh, well, as a woman in film, that would be something Mm -hmm. very near and dear to my heart. I try to be involved with women in film in like multiple facets. I'm a screenwriting judge for the Women in Horror Film Festival. And then Morbidly Beautiful that I work for, we try to focus a lot on like women and what women are doing, especially Mm -hmm. with women in horror coming up. It's actually the month of February. The whole month is supposed to be about women in film.
0: Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. I didn't know that. That is also extra appropriate. (laughs) There are not, unfortunately, as many medieval or uh, medieval-inspired films by women as I might like ideally, but I did some research and managed to come up with this one. This is directed by Suzanne Schiffman, who is a French director. I watched the version of this film dubbed into English because that happens to be what's available on Amazon, but it is originally a French film. And its French title literally translates to the monk and the sorceress. And then they cut out the monk part for the English title and made it just the sorceress because I guess they thought people were not sufficiently excited by monks.
1: <laughs> that That's fair. I would be. I was more <laughs> interested in just sorceress. She's the cool part.
0: Yeah, that's fair. The writer is also a woman and she's actually a medieval art historian professionally. Her name is Pamela Berger. She's currently at Boston College.
1: Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. That is really interesting, though, because the movie is like really pretty in some parts. So I'm sure she hopefully she had some kind of help in that.
0: Yeah. And in particular, it doesn't surprise me because as a, a hint of some things that I might be discussing in a later part. The visuals that you see do actually seem period appropriate, Mm -hmm. which is something that I tend to harp on very frequently in a lot of these (laughs) movies, that you're watching something that takes place in the 13th century and then there's all of these paintings that stylistically are clearly from the 15th century.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't notice those things, but I'm sure like that must be annoying picking up on things like small details like that.
0: Yeah, which is which is why I started this podcast is because I get annoyed by small details like that, that I'm like, you could have just got this right,
1: and it wouldn't have hurt or bothered anybody. Yeah, you can literally pay somebody to research things. Someone is paid to decorate the set just to decorate the set.
0: Exactly. So I appreciate that they had a medieval historian who was on board who did a good job of making sure at least that some things were done accurately, if not necessarily everything. Mm-hmm. And it then stars uh, Cheki Cario, and apologies if I am not pronouncing that correctly, as the Dominican friar Etienne de Bourbon, and Christine Boisson as the forest woman or the titular sorceress Elda. And I I think they're more active in French film. I don't actually know anything
1: about either of them. I don't know if you do. I hadn't heard anything about them. But when I was like looking into the movie, they kept saying stuff about how... Um... This movie wasn't particularly well remembered, but that the Uh people involved in the movie are like extremely involved in film over in France. And I was like, oh, well, I kind of mostly just stick to horror, I guess. So I don't know any (laughs) of them, but I just I was like, oh, yeah, it would make sense that they were uh, trying to work with this like kind of bigger female director then.
0: Yeah. And she's somebody who I hadn't heard of her, but I don't really know anything about film to be honest (laughs) were you familiar with her in advance of this
1: no no when I looked it up they were just like everything I saw was about how they couldn't believe that this movie wasn't more remembered by people because she's like a big deal over there I guess which is good for her good for her
0: yeah, she certainly is prolific. She seems to have a lot of films, some of which look like they're pretty well regarded as far as I could tell, but I have not seen any of them.
1: Yeah, I don't think I have either. I didn't look up a list, but I might have stumbled upon one in film school or something. Right.
0: <laughs> the first main section is the enumeratio or recap section where we'll just kind of talk about the some of the details of the film. So I usually start with just a brief recap to orient us. A Dominican friar arrives at a remote village in France in search of heretics. He finds a local healer woman whom he accuses of heresy and witchcraft. Although his initial suspicions are allayed, they are then aroused anew when he learns of a ritual in which sick children are left in the forest and the protection of a rather unusual saint is invoked. After coming to terms with his own past sins, he has a change of heart and leaves the villagers to worship in their own way we begin with the history of this rather unusual saint (laughs) it's a dog it's a very very good dog it is it's the best dog the best dog ever and i'm gonna go ahead and say now this part of the story is a real thing that there really was this legend of a dog saint Aww. yeah who and here's my cat (laughs) contributing she's like why isn't there a cat saint (laughs) But there really, uh, there was a legend, at least, that there was this dog who had killed a snake that he feared was going to, or that, you know, he thought was attacking the baby. And uh, then the lord, who was the father of the child, uh, comes in, sees that the dog has blood on its mouth, and assumes that the dog has killed the baby, and then kills the dog. And then they find the baby totally fine, and the dead snake, and realize uh, that they suck.
1: Yeah, that was such an interesting part to me because what a, what a massive overreaction
0: yeah that he just immediately kills the dog come on and it's clearly such a good dog it looks so happy and proud of himself yes what a a
1: sweet dog i thought that was so unfortunate like how like yeah. how do you not see the snake or like no. wouldn't the baby be crying i don't know there's so many factors that i was like this poor dog what I know. what an overreaction
0: I know. And also, I mean the way first that you see the dog lie down next to the crib and it's so clear yes. that the dog has like protective instincts toward the baby and it's like come on, this is clearly such a good dog. How could you not give that good good dog the benefit of the doubt?
1: I know. A pretty dog too. At least in the movie, I know. very pretty.
0: It's a greyhound specifically, which is also the case in the legend. Uh-huh. Is that it's supposed to be a greyhound? And yeah, the do- the, the dog actor is a gorgeous dog. <laughs> So yes, props to the skilled dog actor. We then skip forward to this French village in which the people seem to be venerating this dog saint. But we're coming at it from the perspective of Etienne de Bourbon, who is a Dominican friar who shows up in this small town looking for heresy, which is what Dominicans are usually doing. (laughs) That's like the point of them as an order. The priest basically says like, yeah, there's no heretics here. You're all good. And he should go away. And behind him, he's also clearly attempting to hide this painting on the wall of the church at which has this dog with a halo.
1: I love that part. <laughs> I feel like you could cover it up so easily. Like you could be like, yes, this is just like a dog that we that we love. And he's a little angel. It's okay. Just go.
0: <laughs> but he's literally just like st- the priest is just standing in front of it. And the fact that Etienne de Bourbon, who is supposed to be a university-educated individual who carefully is rooting out heresy, is so unobservant that he doesn't notice that this priest is clearly trying to hide this painting of a dog with a halo, is really unimpressive on his part.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like, because the the priest, honestly, he's just drawing more attention to it. Like, if you just would have, like, zipped past it. This man who obviously is not paying attention to anything would not have paid attention to that for sure. Oh yeah, definitely not.
0: He gives this sermon about heresy and uh, then tries to kind of get people to confess to him. And I love that the villagers just deeply do not understand what heresy is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this one woman who's basically like, the count is an asshole, is that heresy?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Arrest this man, we want him out take all these people (laughs) and he's
0: like i'm sorry that's not heresy and then this other guy is like did i commit heresy by accident because there is a saint and i think he might have helped me and i forgot to thank him but then in the course of that he also mentions that there's this forest woman who provided some medicines and etienne gets real excited about this (laughs) and
1: they're like oh that's heresy okay okay gotcha (laughs) our bad (laughs)
0: Actually, it's not exactly we're not exactly what they would have called heresy in the 13th century, but that's a problem for a different time. <laughs> he goes to meet her and it's this uh, woman named Elda, and he spends a lot of time basically arguing with her about whether God likes herbs. <laughs> because essentially she's like, "No, this is like a gift from God that I use these herbs to heal people." Uh, and he's like, "No, it doesn't say that in the Bible."
1: <laughs> you can't do anything outside of the Bible.
0: Apparently not, despite the fact that there are definitely assorted kinds of medical professionals and using their skills of as medical professionals is definitely not heresy. So
1: Yeah, like where where does he think medicine comes from? It's just pre-made, already done. Can't improve upon right. it. Right.
0: Yeah. And there are medical schools and doctors and like people who have who did not go to medical school, who have various kinds of experiential training, like, this is all normal <laughs> in the 13th century? <laughs> Nobody actually thinks it's a problem?
1: <laughs> it's a woman. That's, you know, definitely not That's the That's also fight. not actually a problem.
0: Like, because most of the midwives in this period are women. So they at least assume wow. that the midwives are,
1: like, doing whatever they do, and they don't really care. So this guy's just really out here looking for something to be mad at.
0: Yeah, he's looking for something to be mad at, and... This is also, I would say, a pervasive problem that you have in medieval set films, that people tend to assume that the persecution of witches and of women who know things about herbs as witches was a big thing in the Middle Ages. And in fact, it's something that's actually a bit later. It really, this is the 13th century and it really becomes a big deal in the kind of late 15th into the 16th century. Oh, wow. Yeah, but this is a really common problem that they displace witch persecution in that way. And because if you think about it, right, it's also the 17th century in the US, the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, yeah. Like the 16th and 17th century, not the 13th, is really the height of witch persecution. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I think... They're probably just like, well, people don't understand the difference. If it's old times, it's old times. We'll just, they all blend together.
0: Exactly. So yeah, so Etienne de Bourbon is a man several centuries before (laughs) his time. (laughs) We meet the Count. The Count is definitely, in fact, an asshole. And also accuses the priest and the bishop, who he never actually beat, of being in league with the peasants who are apparently plotting against him as opposed to just trying to not starve And also, in particular, trying to keep him from building an oratory in honor of his dead father. Hmm. And then he also yells at Etienne because he realizes, based on his name, that he's from a noble house and calls him a traitor to his lineage and a coward. This then inspires the first flashback, where we see the young Etienne de Bourbon, a.k.a. the same actor in a truly awful wig.
1: (laughs) Yes, a beautiful bowl cut (laughs) wig.
0: It's heinous. (laughs) To be fair, he still has a bowl cut in the present of the movie. It's just a shorter bowl cut, and also there's a tonsure. Yes, yes. So his hair is never good. It's a little bit better.
1: It's yeah. at least not so wiggish.
0: At least you get the tonsure. I mean, at least it's like, okay, I get why you're doing this. This is a religious thing. The in the his youth, it's like this is your choice. Yes,
1: this is not. Okay, this is style. not a good fashion statement. <laughs>
0: So the flashback is to the last time, I guess, that somebody mocked him as a coward, which is his father yelling at him and calling a coward because he refused to help gut some dead deer that he had hunted. Mm, That part's awful. Yeah, you get to see a very graphic image of the dead deer. I hope it's not a real
1: deer. Yeah, it was very convincing. Like when I was watching it and it got to the deer, I was like, oh my goodness, that looks, it looks real. So if it's not real, good on them, really. Yeah, good. Either good
0: special effects or, wow, that was kind of a dick move murdering a deer for this movie.
2: Yes. I don't
0: know which. Back in the present, Etienne, inspired by this interaction with the Count, writes to the Prior about his concern that the nobility might try to twist the Inquisition to their own purposes. This doesn't seem to actually be that much of a thing, since Etienne seems to be twisting the Inquisition to his own purposes all by himself. (laughs)
1: He's kicking off the Salem witch trials early. Right. (laughs) Yep.
0: Just man before his time.
1: (laughs) Etienne then goes to bathe in the woods and
0: we get to see him in what seems like this impromptu effort at creating a medieval thong, which I assume is really just intended to keep the ratings down here. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to just like having him be naked when he's taking a bath.
1: We have to keep his butt crack covered. Otherwise, we will get a stronger rating. (laughs) <laughs> the butt crack must be
0: hidden at all costs.
1: But I appreciate them for that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't need to see this guy's <laughs> butt crack, so it's fine. He runs into Elda, and Elda gives him a wart cure. And then she lifts her dress, and he sees her legs. And then this inspires another flashback where, after he didn't butcher the deer, he ran into the woods for a while and then saw this woman, and she fell over, and then he saw her
1: legs very very beautiful ankles
0: yes i was really hoping this wasn't gonna go the place where of course it went
1: yes 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 yes
0: yeah so we'll get there that gets revealed (laughs) i was really hopeful it was gonna turn out okay for that woman i yes
1: so much i did think it was really interesting just film wise what a very different version of the male gaze than we're used to it was still extremely yeah. sexual, but it was, like, the legs.
0: It was the legs, and I do, I will say, also think that it's done in a way that's emphasizing her vulnerability as opposed to just her being sexually tantalizing. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, that was definitely an inch. Like, I've never seen a gaze like that in a movie, I don't think.
0: Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting, I do wonder if it's possible. Like, I mean, if a male director very possibly would have done that differently.
1: Yeah, that is. Yeah, probably. Yeah. If we learned anything from Wonder Woman being over- taken over by a man, I would think Wait. probably so.
0: Yeah, that was definitely an interesting choice film-wise. Simeon, his father's retainer, uh, comes in search of Etienne. First, he runs into Elda, who is uh, buddies with a wolf, which is great. More, more great uh, canine actors here. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't
1: she take a thorn out of his foot?
0: Yes, it's very cute. It's actually very reminiscent of a an actual saint, St. Jerome, who takes a thorn out of the foot of a, of a lion, and the lion like yeah. follows around and is his buddy for the rest of his life. Yes, yes. That's what I thought of, too. So yeah, so it's very much a sweet scene. It also, in terms of the religious symbolism, I think is very much trying to set her up as a figure who was more on the side of good than on the side of evil which is a big theme of this movie oh yeah simeon then goes to see etienne and informs him that his father has died vaguely in the crusade don't know which crusade (laughs) but a crusade
1: you know they were just kind of popping off at the time so (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah
0: And that he is therefore now the owner of the manor. And Etienne, of course, informs him that he will be handing over the manor to the Dominican order, since Dominicans take a vow of poverty and cannot own personal property. And so the order then owns property for them. Hmm. Simeon is also traveling with this young woman who is mute and who prays by drawing images. And he shows him this image that she's drawn on a tablet of the Virgin and Christ. And apparently she's there because she has no family and Simeon is worried about her safety and security being this vulnerable woman who is completely alone and has no family and uh, tells Etienne that he wants them to go together eventually after Etienne's done with his stuff
1: here and take her to a monastery for her to live. Yeah, the drawing, I guess, kind of reminiscent of Midsummer. Oh, yeah, it kind of is.
0: And I like the drawing. It's good. She's yeah. she's a good artist. I I hope she ends up in one of the convents where they train women to be illuminators of manuscripts. She's got some skills or no. Well, I guess she doesn't actually end up in a convent Uh, spoiler for the end, but,
1: (laughs) but it would be, would have been a nice thought.
0: Yeah. Etienne uh, comes across this peasant woman that he talked to earlier, who is like, is heresy the same as class conflict? And she comes to yell at him because he didn't intervene with the count. And now the count has taken her husband prisoner and is starving him to death. Etienne does something actually helpful and convinces the guards to uh, let the woman see her husband. And like babysits for a while, be her infant child, which honestly it's surprising that he's like not bad with the baby for a man who very possibly
1: has never seen a baby before. <laughs> now he holds it a little awkwardly, but he, yeah, he was fine. Bouncing the baby, having a good time. Yeah. And
0: there are definitely some scenes where it seems like the women also hold the babies like awkwardly in such a way that
1: I'm like, is this an actual baby or is it a weird doll? <laughs> it was an actual baby and they were like you better not drop it you better hold it as <laughs> carefully as possible please be careful <laughs> and
0: the woman also it's cool that she goes up and she uh, she's a nursing mother and she nurses her husband so he doesn't starve to death which is fun <laughs> etienne ends up wandering into this house where an old man is dying before he comes in, this is his first hint that something maybe a little weird is going on in this village. Before he comes in, they are praying to Guinefort, Gine- to, to the dog saint. Guinefort is his name, who is described as friend in life, friend in death, which is the most adorable thing I have ever heard. Yes. And the best way to describe a dog saint.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's. That's just like a sweet inscription for any animal you could ever lose in your life.
0: Yeah, it's so nice. I love it. I do too. Yeah. He also sees a woman embroidering a dog on the shroud and asks about this. And the priest tells him, oh no, it's a reference to the Dominicans, (laughs) uh, which is hysterical. And it's because the Dominicans, if you separate out the Latin name, it would be Dominicanes, which would mean hounds or dogs of the Lord. And uh, this is a symbol that's... Yeah, sometimes a bit snarky and sometimes embraced. That is neat. I like that. Yeah. And so it's actually a pretty clever move on the priest part. Yeah. He talks with Elda for a little while, and Elda expresses how sorry she is that she will never learn how to read or write. And they then have this argument about basically whether her skills are things that are worthy of a book being written about. And he's very much this only wisdom and church things are subject for books and not the sort of thing you write about and she even asks him will you write one day about what you've learned in this village to which he responds there's nothing to
1: learn in this village I feel (laughs) like is unnecessarily obnoxious absolutely but certainly does not sound out of place for you know a religious man walking around wandering places
0: yeah, and he in this film is very much, I would say, increasingly over the course of the film in some ways, presented as being somebody who is overly rigid in his own opinions and unwilling to accept the possibility that there are other kinds of knowledge and ways of being in the world. Oh,
1: definitely. But again, like I feel like, well, I grew up like in the South slash the Midwest, so I feel like I've uh-huh. seen that a lot. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I think that's like just a prevalent thing in life. And I would imagine, I'm not sure, I'm sure you would know way more than me that that would probably be at least something that would happen at this point in time, especially with men.
0: Oh, absolutely. I would say the idea of this Dominican friar, so somebody who has particularly joined this order, which, as I said, one of the big functions of it is very much to combat heresy, which essentially means basically having people burned at the stake for thought crimes, for not thinking about Christianity in the correct way, according to the church. Oh, Jesus. It certainly is not surprising that somebody who made that life choice would be a very rigid individual. Oh yeah. He witnesses this odd procession around the statue of St. Christopher. Sad story. I believe St. Christopher has actually been de by the Catholic church oh, recently because no they decided he's not real. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a tragic end
0: i know right it's kind of mean there's a couple of saints that have uh, had that fate that the church has decided that there's no evidence they really existed and so they're not saints anymore that's such feels bullshit kind of obnoxious.
1: i know right like yeah they're really old like <laughs> maybe there isn't evidence anymore but how dare you right
0: and it's also funny because it's like there's also I mean, there's also other saints that haven't gotten that treatment, but that are essentially they're too big of a deal because they're people that actually like Jesus knew that there's also not that. that much actual evidence around, but they decide like they're taking that, you know, they're taking the evidence they have as more valid. So it's very much to some extent also a weighing of how important the saint still is against other things that they know. Wow. But there was one de-sainting, which was actually a good call, which is that there was somebody who was uh, did the first step, who was beatified, but not actually canonized, who is a, a person who was venerated as a saint after he was allegedly murdered by Jews in a uh, in a, <sighs> one of the blood libel accusations. Oh, so my. good call on the church for canceling the sainthood on that one. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, good job, good job.
0: <laughs> See, yeah. I
1: don't know anything about saints or anything like that. So this is all interesting to me. I, I feel like I knew you could get de-sainted, but I didn't think it was like actually a thing. I guess.
0: Yeah, no, it's been a big, a big thing in the uh, the modern era. Wow. I have had Catholics tell me that I know more about that I'm a better Catholic than they are because <laughs> I, as a medievalist, just know a lot about this sort of thing. So. <laughs> He sees this procession. Initially, he's sort of upset by the way they're using snakes. They're sort of throwing snakes at the statue, and then kind of gives up on complaining.
2: <laughs>
0: he also goes to Elda's cottage and finds a pot of something, and tries to just like drink from the pot just by itself. And only when she shows up and hands him
1: a ladle is he like, "Oh, a ladle!" Especially since the ladle is actually in the pot. Yeah, like, wow, way to feel like you just own everything, dude.
0: Right. It's also very much reminiscent of these tweets that have been going around recently about specifically men who are not capable of using basic kitchen tools. I mean, I think one of them is a man who was told to have a cauliflower and tried to rip it in half with his bare hands instead of using a knife. Oh my god, what? that's definitely what this reminds me of.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought for sure you were going to say something about all the terrible men taking all the lasagnas for some reason
0: (laughs) that is also a problem that he's just like oh i can like take this like soup or whatever without asking that yes it is also very (laughs) reminiscent of the men who just steal their wives or partners lasagna for no good reason (laughs) so men you're on notice to both use appropriate kitchen utensils and also not steal food
1: (laughs) (laughs) especially whole lasagnas i'm tired of seeing it on reddit
0: (laughs) Don't do it. Just don't steal lasagna. We also learned that the count's wife has successfully given birth to a son, in part with Elda's help. Etienne decides briefly to chill the fuck out (laughs) and is in the process of writing, there's no heresy here. The villages are good Christians. They're practicing Christianity in their own simple way, but it's all fine. And then he hears this screaming child and he goes outside and he sees the peasant woman with the baby from before. And follows her into the woods. She goes to Elda's and claims that her baby has been exchanged for a changeling. And then asks Elda to come with her for the grove rite so she can recover her real baby. Elda, we see, tries to dissuade her but then ultimately agrees to help. And they go to this grove. And Etienne is still following them in the woods like a (laughs) creep. They pray to Guinefort over the child. And they rub some herbs on him and then leave him before this fire. There's a wolf that comes out. I'm assuming the same cool wolf from before, but then it leaves.
1: I assumed it was the same as well.
0: Yeah. And on the basis of this, the woman is then convinced that the changeling has been exchanged and that this is now her own real baby. So she's happy. <laughs> Etienne is not happy. He, the next day, brings all of the villagers to the church to super aggressively question them about what he has seen and interpreted as being this demonic right. He is horrified when they start to explain that, oh, this is about uh, basically protecting our children from the wood sprites, because you shouldn't be believing in in these wood (laughs) sprites. And also accuses Elda of being the person who is primarily instigating and leading people in this, quote, diabolical superstition, despite the fact that he saw the whole thing happen. And she honestly seemed pretty reluctant about doing it in the first place. He just wants to take down a woman. I know exactly. Like that's very much how it comes off here. Is that like he just like has it out for women in general? This women and part- this woman in particular. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. It's almost like he like. It's like, oh, you make me feel things, and that's not okay. I have to do anything I can to stop you from doing literally anything. I'm gonna pin everything on you. Right, and this is another thing that you
0: see all the time in medieval movies. Is a. Uh, the interpretations of these admittedly not very nice, primarily celibate men as being entirely motivated, basically by frustrated sexual desire.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And while I'm not going to say that none of them had frustrated sexual desire, I think it's a little excessive, the need to interpret their actions in this particular way.
1: Yeah. It's a, it seems really like not to like, be a champion for men or anything but it does seem really dismissive of like oh yes man only thing you can feel is like this sexual attraction that you cannot act upon it's like yeah i'm sure they get like worked up sometimes and that that has led to bad things but it's like you know people can be just dickheads too right also, to be honest as well, it's
0: probably pretty clear that there was a lot of same-sex sexual activity that took place in a lot of monasteries. Oh, yeah. So some of them might not actually have been that sexually frustrated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's very much a choice that gets made pretty often in medieval films, which I don't love.
2: Hmm.
0: He arrests Elda for really no reason. Hmm. She's just real annoyed about having her work interrupted. And she tries to explain to him that the grove rite is something that's valuable basically because it makes mothers feel better and that she's able to, by being involved, actually protect the baby because she uses herbs that make it so that the fire doesn't hurt the baby and the wolf doesn't hurt the baby. She also compares Etienne to a wolf and tells him that he is full of hate. (laughs) And the mute girl comes to see Elda. comes to see Elda and Elda tasks her with collecting some flowers for her since that's her whole deal, (laughs) is collecting flowers. The priest tries to convince Etienne to basically chill the fuck out. Etienne is not up for chilling the fuck out. He compares the practice to human sacrifice. So at some point the priest is like, it's fine like you it's like you've handled everything and he's like if the church had never gotten involved like everything would be just we'd just be sacrificing children all the time and the priest is like it's fine
1: <laughs> like listen bud like the the kid's okay yeah. you're being a little dramatic here even even the um, elder says that she's like trying to protect the baby so like just chill we're not sacrificing anything <laughs> Right. It's pretty clear that this is not
0: actually infanticide, that at least the one baby he saw involved, that baby is totally fine. And they also were kind of watching the baby the whole time. And yeah, yeah, it's just very frustrating. Then the people gradually reveal, or well, this like one dumb kid who hasn't gotten the memo about like, don't (laughs) tell the creepy outsider priest about our dog, Saint. This uh, one kid... uh, says like oh yeah we dedicate the ritual to the martyr saint guinefort and etienne is first like oh cool you've got a saint all right who's the saint and like who is this holy man and the kid's like it's not a man it's a dog and etienne is real fucking mad about this <laughs> that there is a dog saint and he sees this as being a mockery of uh, the cult of relics and of the cult of saints the damn kid
1: could have literally yeah. just been like oh yes supplied dog's name And then never spoke about it again. I'm sure any adult would have just picked up and been like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, our very human saint. Yes. (laughs) Especially because in this film, they very much
0: are presented as knowing that the dog saint is kind of not cool and deliberately hiding it. Yes. Which is maybe not quite how it worked, but it's certainly how it works in this movie, so... (laughs) Etienne then orders the sacred grove and the bones of our very good dog friend to be destroyed. The peasants grumpily join him and are clearly not super on board. The grove destruction, however, does distract the count's guards, which allow the prisoner to escape because he's now super healthy because he's had a bunch of breast milk. (laughs) And also she brought in a underskirt made of hemp that he then used to weave into a rope, which is honestly pretty clever. Very,
1: very clever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, good for them. Increasingly in this film, basically, everybody is, uh, basically, basically everybody thinks Etienne is being an asshole. So Simeon and the priest are criticizing Etienne for wanting to destroy everything and kill Elda. He goes to talk to her and says that he's destroyed the grove and that he's going to hand her over to the secular arm to be burned. And she very snarkily asks why he doesn't just burn her himself. And he responds, oh, the church doesn't burn people.
1: And she's like, (laughs) hmm. hmm <laughs> Just you wait.
0: Yeah, since obviously, certainly from a modern perspective, the gulf between handing someone over to be burned and burning them is not that far. No, not at all. Though they certainly, from Etienne's mindset, would be considered to be distinct. She, uh, she also, by the way, basically says like, well, what if you're wrong? You've then destroyed a saint's relics. And he's like, not, nah. and he's like, eh, I'm going to take my chances on that. <laughs> the movie then takes a sharp turn, which I, for one, did not totally love. No. So uh, he says something to Elda where he asks her basically like, when did the devil take you? And she says, I know when the devil took me. It's because when I was 16, I got raped by my lord in a, uh, the Jus Primae Noctis situation, the uh, supposed right of the first night where the lord claims to have the right to rape his peasant women on the night that they get married. Another pervasive myth. Oh, that's a myth. Yep. Oh wow. Yep, and I I would have thought better of a film that a professional medievalist is involved in to uh perpetuate the use primate Octus
1: myth. I'm I was pretty disappointed by that. They probably I am willing to bet that they fought to not have that in there. And they were like I wouldn't be But surprised. listen, this is what is gonna help sell this movie. This is what people are going to talk about. This is going to make us feel bad for her. And it's going to like make him feel bad for her. Just trust us.
0: Yeah, I imagine you're right. But yeah, but for me, it's just so frustrating. First of all, because it's why can't a woman just like herbs without having had this traumatic experience of rape and then I believe pregnancy and miscarriage?
1: Yeah, why isn't it? It is like. More pu- Well, I wouldn't say more pure, but it is like a really pure idea to for a woman to just be like, yeah, I just really like, you know, mixing herbs together and helping people. And it's, yeah, just kind of what I've always done. Like, there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Right. And there were women in the Middle Ages who were midwives or had other pra- uh, other kind of trades or practices where they did basically mostly kind of spend time mixing herbs. And some of them were married and some of them weren't. And it was just fine. It was a thing that they could do. And as I said, they didn't need to have this traumatic
1: experience
0: to come to this life decision. And I found that very frustrating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's always really frustrating when that's just used as a tool to make a woman's story progress in any way. Like,
2: we all don't have
1: tragedy surrounding us. And even if we do, it's not... like. You're making that the crux of somebody's entire personality when you do that.
0: Exactly. And it also, it introduces this and it implies that it's essentially the motive for her entire life choice. But it simultaneously doesn't actually matter to the film at all. The film would have arguably been, arguably been exactly the same.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Without that element. It's just like, oh, we're going to make you feel a little worse for her. And you're going to dislike him a little bit more. For, like, bringing this up at all. That's it. The only yeah. purpose it serves. Yeah.
0: Then we get to start disliking him even more. Because uh can't have just one rape-related plotline. You need to have a couple. Oh, yeah. So, If there's yeah.
1: multiple women, there has to be. Uh-huh.
0: So, essentially, Simeon reveals to him that, remember that flashback with the lady and her legs? Turns out Etienne raped her. And there is this line that, uh, something along the lines of uh, that he was too sensitive to gut the deer and then found another prey. Yeah. How gross. It's super gross. I do actually like that line as uh, a critique on men who are often present themselves as being in certain ways sensitive or caring, but then are
1: still rapists. Oh, yeah. Because that's... Yeah, shockingly prevalent, I think I would say. Oh, yes. So I did appreciate that
0: particular line, although mm-hmm. I have a lot of issues with this plot line in general. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so he raped this woman, and then it turns out that Agnes, this uh, mute girl, is actually the daughter that the woman who Etienne raped, Marguerite, uh, bore before dying in childbirth. And so, therefore, this is, in fact, Etienne's daughter. This then means that the rest of the movie has to be about the redemption of a rapist. Which is not a choice that
1: I love. No, no. I'm here for the dog. I'm here for the dog saint and for the herbs. I'm very much here for the dog.
0: Yeah, I like the dog. I like the herbs. Uh, I would have been more... It's still honestly a little questionable to have a redemption of this figure who we know is somebody who handed over essentially really innocent people to be burned. Yes. But the fact that then we also have to make him a rapist, which that part is not anything coming from the original story, the original account of this, which I'll get to later. But that is a choice that the film makes that then makes me even much less on board with the subsequent
1: redemption of him and the end of the film. Yeah. And it's just like thinking about like just how films work and like how you have to market things. I would think it would be just as interesting to literally just follow the people who live here and it be focused yeah. on them and them having to dodge this person who is like there to throw them under the bus then it would be to just follow him and everything that he's doing. And yeah, his redemptive arc. Like it's so much less interesting. <laughs> right. I really
0: don't understand why he has to be the hero, to be honest, in the first place. It doesn't actually seem like a natural choice. <laughs> Yeah. He is upset now because I guess he'd managed to forget that he was a rapist for the last decade, I I guess 15-ish years of his life. He'd just forgotten that he's a rapist, but now (laughs) that somebody's reminded him, he's upset about it, I guess. And uh, talks to the priest about possibilities of And the priest basically says that as a form of penance that he should go save Elda since basically you've already essentially killed one woman. (laughs) Don't kill another one. He's not wrong, but it's also like
1: women are interchangeable oh. right exactly like, it like this doesn't actually make up for
0: the fact that you raped and then at least and then like cause the death of another woman but, yeah okay but at this point he's already sent the order to the count uh, handing her over to the secular arm for execution so he has to go to talk to the count and say never mind don't execute her <laughs> And the way that they decide that they're going to persuade the Count is that literally the priest picks up a random rock on the ground and tells Etienne to give it to the Count and say that it is a relic of Saint-Etienne, Saint Stephen, and claim that it's one of the stones used in the stoning of Saint-Etienne, because if it's for a good cause, a bit of cheating never offended the Lord.
1: (laughs) The Lord is bendable. I appreciate this priest, he's, he's fun, I like him. Yes. Essentially
0: the idea is that Etienne is gonna give him this relic because uh, essentially you need a relic to build a new church. And so the idea is that this would then be the basis for the oratory chapel that the count wants to build for his father. The Count is super stoked, however, about executing Elda because he wants to teach the villagers a lesson because he hates them. (laughs) And this is how he decides he's going to do it. And he also hates Etienne because he seems to think Etienne is responsible for all of his other problems, even though he has been here for like two weeks. (laughs) He's a good scapegoat. Yeah. Etienne talks him out of this by using basically the most half-assed parable I have ever heard. (laughs) He comes up with this story and basically the only thing he does is he changes the names of the Count and himself to Arrogantus, the arrogant one in Latin, and Insolentis, the insolent one in Latin. And basically just then tells the story of everything that happens and happened, including reminding the Count that Elda actually saved the life of his brand new son that he's stoked about this apparently is all the count needs to be convinced is literally just being told about all of the events that happened in the last hour and 15 minutes of the movie. (laughs) And we also see that one of the daughters picks up the stone and it kind of like, looks like it glows for a second, which I I don't know. I guess there's maybe like a vague, like maybe miracles are real or maybe like the Lord is on board with this cheating and is going to like get behind it. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought that it was symbolizing. They're just like, oh, yeah, the Lord, the Lord, you're right. He does appreciate cheating sometimes. Yeah, again, I'm I'm fond of this priest.
0: (laughs) Then everybody has a happy ending. Etienne shows back up and says, no, this is just superstition. It's not heresy. Y'all are fine. He lets Elda out of prison. It turns out that Agnes wants to stay in the village and learn from Elda instead of joining a convent. And he decides that's fine. And he also sees that uh, Agnes has, in one of her newer drawings, has uh, drawn St. Guinefort. And Etienne even goes so far as coming up with a sneaky way to allow the villagers to continue to worship St. Guinefort by suggesting that they've mixed him up with a true Christian saint and uh, therefore they should build a chapel. And in the chapel, they'll have a statue that's going to be St. Guinefort with a dog at his side. Wink.
1: (laughs) You know what? Good job. That's a good trick. Yeah. Would have fooled him. So. Yeah.
0: The priest describes him as a stag. He was proud of his antlers, but then got tangled by them in the bushes of sin. Muses that he won't be surprised if Etienne puts all this into a treatise. And then I guess it's supposed to be fine and we're supposed to like him now. You save one woman,
1: you know, and you're completely forgiven.
0: Yeah, just everything's fine. It's really easy to achieve redemption for being a rapist, apparently.
1: Yeah, because like we said, women are interchangeable. <laughs> yep. You save one, you've saved them all, really. Yeah, exactly. Just complete success. Just all canceled out, totally fine. It's like it never happened. <laughs> and his daughter's going to be an herbalist now. It's great. Yes, his daughter who, you know, came from that uh, that interaction. Yep, and who grew up without having a mom because she died.
0: Because of him. Yep. Great. The end crawl informs us this did indeed make it into a treatise, and that rituals at the grove continued with the last woman healer associated with it, dying only in
2: 1936.
0: For our next segment, Vera et Falso, or True and False, we talk about what in this they got right and what in this they did not get super right. (laughs) There's one big thing, the Holy Greyhound itself, that I'm going to save for actually the segment after, where I do a little bit more of a deep dive. Oh. Here I'm just going to bring up a couple of little things. Okay. One is that they know some of the basics of their saint facts. They mention Saint-Étienne being stoned, a real thing that gets quite popularly depicted in medieval art. The statue of Saint Christopher looks overall like your standard statue of Saint Christopher, his deal that he carries the person who then turns out to be Jesus across the water. And so he's got little Jesus on his shoulders. Oh, yeah. I also was super into the stag metaphor at the end, because this idea of these uh, horned animals having their horns tangled in the thickets of sin shows up uh, with a couple of different animals. One is actually an antelope in uh, medieval bestiaries. And this is a fact that I did not have to look up and just knew because a passage to this effect was actually on my medieval Latin translation exam that I needed to take to prove Latin proficiency in grad school. Oh my goodness
1: how interesting (laughs) though that came all the way back around.
0: I know right so at the end I'm just like yeah the
1: stat the like
0: horn the like horns and thicket metaphor. I really like that
1: metaphor just as like somebody who reads and writes a lot it's like yeah that's you know very visual and very nice.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely one of the cool things about the bestiaries also is that they have these really interesting ways to, of seeing animals as being these kind of models for people and relevant to people's lives. Yes. And especially in a film that is very much about boundaries between human and animal in terms of the dog scene, I think that was an interesting touch.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. The Dominicans are overall, I would say, portrayed correctly. This is indeed a thing that Dominicans did. The point of their order is to seek out heresy. And so you'd have Dominicans going to small towns and they would preach and they would look for heretics. And they would indeed burn the heretics or hand the heretics over to the secular arm to be burned because the church is not supposed to do that if they found said heretics or people who they believe to be heretics.
1: Is there a specific reason it was burning, or is that just easy way, easy, quick way? So part of it is basically just that they
0: came up with different
1: means of punishment for different
0: crimes, uh, Mm. in part so that if you were standing far away, you would know what the person is being executed for. Okay. And so it matters that there is a distinction between different crimes. But it also, I would say, has to do with burning as a form of purification, essentially, and uh, it being this essential way to uh, to purify the Christian community of heresy, because heretics are seen as being uh, figures that, in fact, infect the kind of body of Christendom. So um, it's almost like, you know, you kind of like burn a wound to stop the infection or like stop it from bleeding. It's almost like that. That's really neat yeah that makes a lot of sense so yeah so burning burning was the way to go for heresy <laughs> witchcraft is by the way distinct in addition to being really a 16th century thing it's distinct and also tends to be punished by hanging instead of burning
1: ah well that kind of makes sense because in Salem they did do a lot of the hangings versus actual right. burnings or anything Right, exactly.
0: That that's uh, that's not unique to Salem. In fact, is although they're Protestant, is the same thing that Catholics you know start to do even before the Protestant Reformation, when there are witches that witches are supposed to be hanged.
1: Huh. Interesting. Oh.
0: There's also some interesting hints throughout that one of the reasons Etienne considers his services particularly necessary is that there are concerns about the laxity and lack of knowledge of parish priests, and that therefore they're not able to successfully combat heresy in their parishes. And this is a both a real problem and a really and a truly perceived problem that this is something that from the 13th century onward, they're that uh, the church is increasingly worried about because parish priests really often are not especially educated. They often are uh, like, they're often barely literate, in fact. They often can do little more than basically get through the prayers and don't quite know what they mean because they don't actually know very much Latin. So this is uh, the kind of issue that people see in parish priests. And also this idea of the parish priest being complicit in something that is seen as being a heresy is also not that much of a stretch. There's a really interesting book, Montayu. Which is about a 14th century French village, and it's essentially the last village which, at least allegedly, adhered to the Cathar heresy, a heresy that was uh, the kind of heresy to beat in the in exactly this period and a little bit earlier in the 13th century, and. In this book, it talks about how the priest is very much implicated in the heresy and heretical activities of the townspeople. So that is also not outside the realm of possibility that a priest is not actually defending from heresy, but in fact, participating in it. Sounds
1: right. Mm-hmm.
0: I did also appreciate that while the tarring of this woman as being a witch is a later phenomenon than it you know should be depicted here, I did appreciate that that kind of herbal medicine really was predominantly practiced by women. That there was considered to be something of a distinction between, on the one hand, the university-educated doctors who had this whole system of medicine that honestly probably didn't work as well because it's based on a lot of Greek and Roman theories that are kind of bullshit. <laughs> And then in contrast, there are basically women with herbs who are coming up with medicine essentially based on observation. And while obviously it's not foolproof, there are herbs that, for example, function as painkillers. Yeah. And if you use things carefully and pay attention, and pay attention, you can figure out how all of that works. And so you're not going to 100% be able to cure everybody. And it's certainly not equivalent to modern medicine. But uh, it is, honestly, you probably were better off with some of these uh, women herbalists than you would have been with the university-educated male doctors. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that was actually a cool element, uh, even though in her own time, people would have thought that what she was doing was basically fine. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to note that they got wrong that I did hint to this before was that the claim of the use prime noctis that the lords basically rape peasant women on the night they get married... This is a very, very common myth. It's a, in fact, early modern myth that functions sometimes to make the Middle Ages look bad and sometimes for basically people of lower socioeconomic status to even more heavily emphasize than previously how truly terrible their lords were. And to be fair, they were terrible, but this isn't a specific way in which they were
1: terrible. (laughs) Yeah, it's more like, you know, just being rich, just how normal rich people are. (laughs) Awful, sometimes.
0: Right, and it's just like capital. It's just capitalism, essentially. I mean, the boundaries between feudalism and capitalism are actually not as strong as people sometimes think they are. And essentially, that's what it is. it's basically just that, like, the lords literally own the means of production in terms of that, like, they basically like half own the peasants. The peasants don't get to like just decide to leave. Right, and they like it's very complicated if you as a peasant decide you want to not live on this land and not live on and work this land anymore and then you get oppressed by your lord in a variety of ways who also expects you to be predominantly producing for him rather than
1: for your own being able to not starve sounds very familiar yeah (laughs)
0: things haven't changed that much But then there's this weird rape element and obviously you know not that there were not situations in which lords probably raped their peasants but it's not this organized formal right that they had or perceived themselves as having
2: hmm.
0: so it is frustrating that this is something else that they need to insist on as being a thing in so many medieval movies mm-hmm. Then I want to do the deep dive into an area where I would say, overall, they did a pretty good job, although they made some alterations. And that, for the Historia ad Veritas segment, the History and Truth section, is uh, the Holy Greyhound himself, the real story of St. Guinefort. St. Guinefort and the ritual practice by the villagers... In fact, up here, and we know about this precisely because Etienne de Bourbon is also a real person, a real Dominican friar, who went around to a number of villages and then eventually in his book on the Seven Gifts of the Holy Spirit, occasionally went into talking about basically some of the weird things that he found while looking around in search of heresy. And so he describes this particular story. So I'm actually going to read a selection of Etienne de Bourbon's narrative. This recently happened in the Diocese of Lyon, where, when I preached against the reading of oracles and was hearing confessions, numerous women confessed that they had taken their children to St. Guinefort. As I thought that this was some holy person, I continued with my inquiry and finally learned that this was actually a greyhound, which had been killed in the following manner. In the Diocese of Lyon, near the enclosed nun's village called Neuville on the estate of the Lord of Villars, was a castle the Lord of which and his wife had had a baby boy. One day, when the lord and lady had gone out of the house and the nurse had done likewise, leaving the baby alone in the cradle, a huge serpent entered the house and approached the baby's cradle. Seeing this, the greyhound, which had remained behind, chased the serpent and, attacking it beneath the cradle, upset the cradle and bit the serpent all over, which defended itself, biting the dog equally severely. Finally, the dog killed it and threw it well away from the cradle. The cradle, the floor, the dog's mouth and head were all drenched in the serpent's blood. Although badly hurt by the serpent, the dog remained on guard beside the cradle. When the nurse came back and saw all this, she thought that the dog had devoured the child and let out a scream of misery. Hearing it, the child's mother also ran up, looked, thought the same thing, and screamed, too. Likewise, the knight, when he arrived, thought the same thing and drew his sword and killed the dog. Then when they went closer to the baby, they found it safe and sound, sleeping peacefully. Interjection apparently not woken up by all of that screaming. (laughs) Casting around for some explanation, they discovered the serpent torn to pieces by the dog's bites and now dead. Realizing then the true facts of the matter and deeply regretting having it unjustly killed so useful a dog, they threw it into a well in front of the manor's door, threw a great pile of stones on top of it, and planted trees beside it in memory of the event. But the peasants, hearing of the dog's conduct and how it had been killed though innocent and for a deed for which it might have expected praise, visited the place, honored the dog as a martyr, prayed to it when they were sick or in need of something, and many there fell victim to the enticements and illusions of the devil who in this way used to lead men into error. Above all, though, it was women with sick or weak children who took them to this place. They would go and seek out an old woman in a fortified town a league distant, and she taught them the rituals they should enact in order to make offerings to demons, and in order to invoke them, and she led them to the place. When they arrived, they would make offerings of salt and other things. They would hang their baby's swaddling clothes on the bushes round about. They would drive nails into the trees which had grown in this place, They would pass their naked babies between the trunks of two trees, the mother on one side held the baby, and threw it nine times to the old woman, who was on the other side. Invoking the demons, they called upon the fawns in the forest of Remute to take the sick, feeble child, which they said was theirs, and to return their child that the fawns had taken away, fat and well, safe and sound. Having done this, the infanticidal mothers took their children and laid them naked at the foot of the tree on straw from the cradle— Then, using the light they had brought with them, they lit two candles, each an inch long, one on each side of the child's head, and fixed them in the trunk above it. Then they withdrew until the candles had burnt out so as not to see the child or hear him crying. Several people have told us that while the candles were burning like this, they burnt and killed several babies. When a mother returned to her child and found it still alive, she carried it to the fast-flowing waters of a nearby river called the Chalaron, and plunged it in nine times. If it came through without dying on the spot or shortly afterwards, it had a very strong constitution. I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, <if> this <laughs> baby can make it like being like dumped in a forest alone for like five hours and then dropped in a river. Then if it doesn't die from that, it's probably gonna make it. Yeah,
1: yeah that's a that's a strong baby.
0: Right. Yeah. But this yeah. also yeah. Hey, Opie. <laughs> My own dog is contributing. It's like, <laughs> I would do that too. I would kill the snake. I bet you would. He definitely would. would. Yeah. But you can definitely tell reading, hearing that description, that a lot of the elements in the film in terms of the cult surrounding Guinefort the Holy Greyhound and the elements of this ritual are very much ones that are, that come ultimately from Etienne Bourbon's description. And indeed, the real Etienne Bourbon had less of a like sense of humor ultimately about the whole thing and did as far as we know just destroy the grove and then take off although he also probably as far as we know also he was not a rapist so he has that going for him (laughs) a redeeming quality right great (laughs) one of the things that i think is really interesting is that the woman who is presented as being the woman who kind of knows the rights and is involved in uh, the original narrative is explicitly described as being an old woman, not a like sexy youngish woman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But people don't care about women if they're, if they're old. So we had to make her, you know, accessible. Exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, an interesting, although
0: not entirely surprising choice that our forest that our uh, our woman attendant at the grove gets aged real down and made real sexy with like her nice legs that you see uh, with her lifting up her ropes.
1: Yes. (laughs) The... Other
0: things that I think are interesting is that so the priest is presented here and a number of the other villagers as well as really knowing that this whole thing is not okay and trying really hard to hide it. And based on the original narrative, that actually doesn't seem to have necessarily been, a, been the case. They seem to have basically thought what they were doing was kind of fine.
1: <laughs> I like that idea, though, that he just stumbled upon these people and they were like, oh, that's wrong. But but it was a good dog. <laughs> right. And
0: and the th- reason that I think the original story is so interesting is in part that it really indicates the extent to which the things that the church formally is trying to teach and the ideas and uh, doctrines that they're trying to instill in people, people just genuinely don't know them. And uh, their priests also don't really know them, which, uh, you know, because they're not really very well educated. And uh, this is something that the church obviously sees as a problem. It's also probably a lot of the explanation for what the church called heresy. A lot of it probably is people who don't really know, in fact, what is correct church doctrine or not. And there probably were people who, in fact, were executed as heretics, who basically just nobody ever taught them what church doctrine was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, like, at the time, it wouldn't be super shocking to not know everything that was going on because how were you going to get all this information especially if you weren't near like a major city or anything like that like how fast is information spreading not very
0: exactly and also most of the people in this village in fact really they can't read yeah and so it's not like they're reading books even the priest as i was saying before very possibly honestly kind of can't read and even if he can even to the extent that he can sort of read because he's not near a major city and he's not near and he's not near any kind of major monastery or center of learning he probably at least even if he can read doesn't have many books yeah and so it's really not uncommon that people would just be not entirely clear on what the church tells you you're supposed to think.
1: Yeah. I guess you just believe who, I don't know. I guess it could go either way where you would believe the person who was the nicest to you and encouraged you to just do the things that you were already doing in like a nice manner or the people who, you know, came and sent people in your village to be lit on fire.
0: Right. And you have people who are wandering around preaching In some regions of France for a long time, a number of those people probably are, in fact, preachers who are adherents of certain ideas that are declared by the church to be heretical. But the people who are listening to these don't even necessarily know that they're listening to and therefore believing the ideas of heretical preachers as opposed to orthodox ones. And then these other preachers come in and say something different. And it is, as you said, it's just essentially a, well, who do you trust? and they probably don't know who to trust to some extent
1: yeah and then what a harsh punishment to just like well this one person told us this yeah well it's actually like this and you know just to really drive it home i'm gonna kill some of you because like you gotta learn it's like what why would you enjoy the church after that i guess like it's instilling fear but you know
0: Right, it's instilling fear, but is that ultimately the best impetus to ensure people's faith? Very possibly not.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's like, how much of it is people just pretending to do the things that you want them to do because, you know, they're terrified that you're going to kill them, or, you know, eventually, like, terrified that they're going to go to hell and all that good stuff. Right, yeah,
0: and uh, it is also, I think... Interesting as part of this, then, that if you look at 14th century inquisitorial manuals, they have as a way to kind of uh, basically a thing to be aware of with heretics that if they say something like, Oh, I will say what is true if you tell me what's really true, that this is interpreted by these Dominican inquisitors as being a roundabout way to not actually deny their heresy, but make you think they're denying their heresy. But if you read them and think about the realities behind uh, the everyday lives of many of these people, probably what they really meant is basically, you're torturing me. Please just tell me what to say so that will stop and also you won't execute me.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that I think is like just a big thing with torture being a completely useless method of anything because yeah i'm i'll tell you whatever you want me to tell you as long as you don't you know light my family members on fire as long as you're not here stoning people like exactly yeah
0: one of the other things that is uh, something of an addition that i think is interesting here in this film is elda takes some time to interpret what the function of this ritual is, essentially. And she basically says, like, this ritual is to basically make mothers feel better. And, like, if their kids die, then they'll feel like they did something and they tried. uh, Or if their kids get better, then they'll have, like, an explanation for themselves about why their kids got better, basically. Yeah. And that it's, like, a psychological thing. It's funny, because this is a way of thinking about the ritual, which is very much a modern anthropological interpretation (laughs) of that sort of ritual, which isn't surprising because it is pretty close to how the ritual is interpreted in the book that is actually written about this. So Jean-Claude Schmidt in uh, 1979 wrote his book, wrote this book in French, which in English was, it was translated to English in 1983 and in English is known as the Holy Greyhound Guinefort Healer of Children since the 13th century, which talks about the history of this ritual and of this cult of this Holy Greyhound. Mm. Yeah. And, like, you know, I don't blame them. Some of the medieval saints are, like, some, like, real dour fucks. Like, (laughs) I don't blame them for being really into this dog. Yeah, like,
1: and what, what just, like, a sweet thing to really believe in that much that it's, like, yeah, we, you know, we just really loved this dog. And if you Mm -hmm. were living in, like, such a fucking time period where everything was kind of, I don't know, I don't. I know there has to be joy, like, in this world, joy. it's always, like, portrayed so, so austere and, like, sad, and it's like, well, yeah, even now, if somebody was like, yeah, we have, like, this saint at my church, and it's this dog, and it saves babies, I'd be like, that's amazing, and I might not be your religion, but I support that. Yeah,
0: and... I knew. So the Middle Ages is not quite as austere and depressing constantly <laughs> as it tends to be presented as, but, you know, life is hard sometimes.
1: Yeah. you need, Sometimes you just need, you know, we all love the good, the feel good news stories. So I feel like that's right. kind of, this is very similar to that.
0: Right. And it also, I think, really speaks to the fact that people today, obviously, often really, really love their pets. People in the Middle Ages presumably also really loved their pets. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense based on the kind of culture surrounding martyrdom and the idea that martyrdom in itself, that killing somebody who is innocent and did good and killing them for doing good, essentially, which is the case with this dog, that that then makes you a martyr and that martyrdom brings about sanctity, that based on that, And based on this idea that not all people in the Middle Ages necessarily agreed with the church on on their idea of there being a very deep and fundamental difference between humans and animals, it kind of makes sense that this might happen, that they hear this story about the dog and they'd be like, yeah, the dog's a saint. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And like, I don't know that many people that would sacrifice their lives so willingly but yeah. you know, a dog, a hundred percent, your dog would die for you in a lot of situations, like not oh, even yeah, like absolutely. meaning to, but meaning to protect you. Cats wishy washy, you know. But yeah, definitely I mean, dogs, maybe not cats so
0: much. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason all dogs go to heaven is a saying, right? <laughs> yeah, it's that like all dogs are saints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we should be we should all be uh, be be coming up with paintings where our dogs have halos. <laughs>
1: Gotta hang him in all the Catholic churches.
0: Yep. (laughs) Bring back St. Gina for it.
1: (laughs) Has he been de-sainted?
0: He was never canonized by the church in the first place. So this is, it's not uncommon in the Middle Ages that there are people who the church never actually formally declared a saint, but who are venerated as saints on a local level. In a lot of cases, they're just like people and there's nothing quote, wrong with them from the church perspective, the church is just like never heard of them and doesn't care. Sounds right. And
1: also fair.
0: Yeah. Right. And so unless like, and also like canonization, the canonization process is lengthy and often also expensive that if you want to make sure somebody gets canonized, then you should probably be spending money on lawyers who are experts in church law to be responsible for basically kind of making sure this person gets canonized according to all of the rules that develop about proof of miracles and things like that. Wow. And I mean, you do these like very lengthy inquests where you like find out about all the miracles performed by this saint. And it's actually, it's a pretty complicated process. So it makes sense that on a local level, there are places where people are venerating saints that just like nobody ever instigates this kind of process for them.
1: Huh. Yeah, I did not even know it took money. To do something like that. This is oh, inspiring yeah. me to look into Catholic things, saints and such. Yeah, saints are really interesting. Says yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm Jewish too.
1: <laughs> I'm like, I don't know anything
0: about this. Saints, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> For our next segment, Fabula Nostra, or Our Story, I. Have this be as an opportunity for me and my guest to both come up with another, an alternate version that we might like to see of this movie. Are there anything that you particularly had in mind as maybe the story that you would like to see instead of this one, but kind of inspired by this one?
1: Well, like I kind of mentioned earlier, the idea of just following the people in the town and like mm-hmm. them having to dodge these Catholic folk as they come and try to like over their, their way of life would be so, so interesting. <laughs> and even just like following Elda and like, I yeah. think people working with like herbs and like, I think witchcraft and all that stuff is like really, really interesting. But, you know, just being mm-hmm. an herbalist I think is really cool. And I would be interested in just seeing something about how they do that <laughs> and like trials and errors
0: Yeah, no, I think that would be really fascinating. And to some extent, my idea was kind of similar, that I'd actually love to have a story, which is this village well before Etienne de Bourbon even shows up. Yeah. um, And have him not actually be involved at all. And the story that I think would be really interesting to tell would actually be one about the history and the transmission process of these women who are associated with the herbal healing and with this grove rite associated with St. Guinefort. And so that it would be the current healer, who would be a somewhat older woman, and then a woman who's basically trying to decide whether to become her apprentice, as opposed to maybe choose a kind of more traditional marriage
1: and children sort of path. Oh, that would be really interesting. Yeah,
0: so that's the movie that I decided I would want to see. And I actually did some casting ideas, which is that I thought Sigourney Weaver would be interesting as the current healer, as somebody who definitely has some gravitas, I love it. And I just saw Knives Out, and I'm super into Ana de Armas right now, because she was really, really good.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: And I think she also did an amazing job at portraying a lot of internal conflict, and so I think she would be great as the younger woman perspective apprentice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, she's so good. She's so good in Knives Out. I love both of them. Yeah, I loved Knives Out.
0: That, I think, is the... The story that I would want to see is just Etienne de Bourbon's not even involved. These are like the good
1: days before this jerk <laughs> inquisitor showed up and destroyed their grove. Yeah, they're lighting candles by their babies in peace.
0: Exactly. Just just let them light candles by the babies.
1: <laughs> I'm also like really interested in like the changeling stuff. I have a oh, friend yeah. who writes a lot of stuff like that. I think she just got a novel published about Um, Mm. fae and things like that and it's so interesting to me and even though it's not totally connected it would be a really neat idea to see just like actual fae like changing out babies and the things they do to end up fighting them off
0: Yeah, and these are really pervasive ideas in the Middle Ages. And I think, yeah, actually doing a movie where that supernatural was real could also be a really cool one. But yeah, but these are things that people genuinely believed, even when the church sometimes is like, no, maybe you shouldn't believe that. (laughs) Also, I think this ritual really speaks to the ways in which people are very much, have very complicated feelings about what happens when they have these children who are very ill. And that that is one of the explanations that they come up with for the illness of their children is this idea that they're sick because they're not actually my child, that they've been exchanged for this other child and that it does make sense that this is a way that they then try to be able to feel that, that they've done something and they've tried to make things right. And that then they can not feel guilt in the same way
1: if their child does die. Right. Because like, we have a lot of medical knowledge now, but even now, mm-hmm. there's things, you know, like SIDS, where it's just, it just happens. And it's, yeah. you know, it's easier to place blame on something like that than like it just being a blameless situation where something bad just happened.
0: Yeah. And this is a period where infant mortality is very, very high. That's actually why people tend to have this idea that people kept dying at 40 or 50 all the time in the middle ages mm-hmm. isn't because that was super common it's because the average lifespan is completely skewed by the fact that so many people died in infancy or early childhood that makes sense and so if you made it past the age of like 10 you'd very possibly live to 70 or 80 but a lot of people didn't make it past 10 and then a lot of women died in childbirth oh yeah yeah but yeah so in this context where you know your kid to die like it's very likely for your child to die it makes sense that you would come up with a ritual that makes you feel like you've done something to try and stop it
1: right and then if it doesn't stop it it it's not your fault at all it was yeah you know either something was was done wrong by somebody else or yeah it was the fairies yeah and then you don't have to live with feeling guilty about that which is a good thing yeah definitely especially if you're living in a time where. You're having multiple children and they're just kind of dying off. Right.
0: So we can now move on to the part where we rate this film on a scale from one to five, the enumeratio section. And this can be based on whatever criteria you like. I personally tend to have a combination of historical accuracy and does this movie hate women (laughs) as my criteria. So what would you want to rate this film?
1: Yeah, I think probably like a three. It's not a bad movie at like, but it's not super interesting. I feel like if you were to watch this movie in the right headspace, you might get a lot more from it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, speaking of hating women, it's interesting yeah. how the women are portrayed by so many women being involved. Is it pretty mm-hmm. interesting? So yeah, a straight three.
0: I'm very torn. I think ultimately I'm going to go up to a 3.5, mostly just because I love this story about the Holy Greyhound so much. And I was so delighted when I found out that somebody decided to make it into a movie. And they actually do in a lot of ways a really good job with that. I really just, I feel like this movie could have been rated so much higher by me, at least. I don't know about anybody else, but by (laughs) me, at least. If it had done that without including these uh, really extraneous and gratuitous rate plot lines.
1: Yes. It is a really like visually pleasing movie too. Like it's shot very well. It looks nice. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it has a female character who has agency, which to be honest is relatively rare in medieval set films. It does not, well, okay, so it definitely passes my test that I invented for this podcast, the Ifdecker test, according to which there has to be at least one named female character who doesn't die.
1: <laughs> the bar is low.
0: <laughs> right? So many things don't pass that. Goodness. I'm not sure if it passes the Bechdel test or not, because uh, there's the scene with Elda and the peasant woman that i don't know they're kind of talking at the grove right they're kind of talking about her baby who is as it happens a boy i'm also (laughs) not sure the peasant woman ever has a name
1: given to her Mm. Eh, i say a fine line i'd say yeah yeah so it arguably maybe passes the best test (laughs) a baby boy is not quite a man I
2: would say that's true
0: and even India yeah, and they're also really like a lot of the conversation they are talking about the grove right and I would say to some extent it's more about her feelings as a mother than it is about the child himself yeah it's kind of an object to some extent <laughs> yes <laughs> so uh, I, I if she has a name which I didn't quite catch it but maybe she does if she has a name then I'll give it to the movie
1: i'm gonna look through the credits and it's just gonna say peasant woman Be like ah right
0: i defended you right and also i mean i'm sometimes resistant to give it credit if the woman has a name in the credits but isn't actually named ever in the film
1: that's fair i myself am very bad at names so i i would forget
0: yeah i mean because it's not impossible that she had a name and i just missed it so uh I'll maybe give it that. But there have definitely been movies where I've noticed that there are women who uh, are women characters who are real people and who I assume are named because I know who they are mm-hmm. and they're named in the credits. But actually, no one ever says their name in the entire movie. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah, Braveheart, which was the first one, <laughs> movie that I did for this podcast. <laughs> one of the main female characters is uh, Isabelle de France, who marries uh, the, um, the heir to the English throne and she's a real person and so i'm like yeah it's isabel i know who it is but it yeah but then but then uh, my then co-host ollie realized like no they actually never say her name because i kept saying isabel and he kept saying uh, he kept being like who's isabel
1: that's tragic <laughs> i feel like i'm gonna have to buy a clicker and like keep tallies of any time i hear a woman's name in a film from now on i know right
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of bizarre oh. As we wrap up, where can the listeners of this podcast find you on the internet if they would like to do that?
2: Oh,
1: as of right now, my Instagram is officially off private, so you can find me there. Uh, I post some things about when I write, and I'll be posting stuff about um, my feature film that's kicking off in June. Um, It is just my first name, underscore Z, underscore H, and uh, I'm sure you'll spell out my name. (laughs) Yes, in the show notes, your name will be spelled. Yeah, because it's, it's going to be different than you think it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. if it, You said you have a podcast that you're starting. I can, I'm can i happy to cut this out if you don't want to talk about it yet. But if you oh, do want to no. talk about it, if you do want to plug your future podcast.
1: Yes. Yeah, it is not off the ground in any way, shape, or form yet. But uh, my <laughs> friend and I, we went to undergrad together. We made a podcast together called Literary Fist Fight and it's just about (laughs) authors that absolutely hate each other. (laughs) That
0: sounds amazing.
1: And I actually
0: know of some medieval examples if you're looking for more examples.
1: I am always looking for more examples. The lists are always Hemingway versus this person. Hemingway versus this person. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Hemingway just hated everybody, which is not totally, or at least everybody hated Hemingway, a little bit of each,
1: I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Column A, column B, definitely.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, there are some fun medieval examples that I'll (laughs) I'll share with you.
1: Perfect. Yes. If
0: you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow Media Evil on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye.
1: Bye.